This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. I'd like to acknowledge their elders past and present and acknowledge and pay my respects to the elders of the lands that you are listening from today, as well as any First Nations people listening today. Sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to another episode of Lauren Lately, the podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Beckman, but you may know me from Instagram at lauren.lately. Okay, going to do something a little bit different this week because there were just so many things that I wanted to talk about and that I had opinions on this week. So going to do a little bit of a lightning round, I guess. Um, So going to cover off on a couple of things. So I'm going to talk about Jane Campion's white feministy comments about Venus and Serena Williams at the Critics' Choice Awards. I'm going to talk about our obsession with commenting on people's weight in the public eye. And I'm also going to talk about the quote unquote nude photo scandal on maths. But first up, I want to talk about Jane Campion and the speech that she made at the Critics' Choice Awards. If you're not familiar with it, I'm going to play it for you right now. Give my love out to my fellow, 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 the guys. (laughs) (laughs) The nominees. And, And, you know, Serena and Venus, you are such marvels. However, you do not play against the guys. (laughs) Like I have to. (laughs) There's about another 10 seconds of clapping and cheering that go on after that that I did not think you needed to listen to um but you can tell she really thought she was doing something there you could tell that she really thought she was going for the feminist angle however what we got was the white feminist angle so what we have is a white woman who has gotten up won an award and used her speech during that to talk about two women she claims to be honored to be in the room with but says that she has it harder in her industry than they do. That is the implication that is being made there. Jodie Turner-Smith tweeted, Jane taking time out of her best director speech to tell two black women that she is more oppressed than them is peak white feminism. And it absolutely is. Jane later made an apology and it says, I made a thoughtless comment equating what I do in the film world with all that Serena Williams and Venus Williams have achieved. I did not intend to devalue these two legendary black women and world-class athletes. The fact is the Williams sisters have actually squared off against men on the court and off, and they have both raised the bar and opened doors for what is possible for women in this world. The last thing I would ever want to do is minimize remarkable women. I love Serena and Venus. Their accomplishments are titanic and inspiring. Serena and Venus, I apologize and completely celebrate you. As an apology goes, it's not the worst, but she says that she didn't intend to devalue them and intend any harm. But the second she had a platform and any kind of power, she tried to equate her own experience with the oppression of two black women when they are just not the same at all. It completely ignores the aspects of misogynoir, which is the intersection of misogyny and racism as it applies specifically to black women. The thing is, we know that intention is not as important as impact. So while she didn't mean it, and it was a thoughtless comment. That's not the point because harm happens in those thoughtless and unintentional words. 
people have said that Serena clapped, so she must have been okay with it. And Venus laughed a little after looking very deeply uncomfortable. But this ignores the fact that those women would have been blasted if they had not smiled and clapped. They would be cast as the angry black woman. They didn't have a choice. They were put in an incredibly uncomfortable position that was completely avoidable. Why was Jane Campion even talking about the Williams sisters? It wasn't her film. She has nothing to do with King Richard. They have nothing to do with Power of the Dog. There was no reason for Jane Campion to even invoke Venus and Serena, except to assert some white dominance and say that the struggles that she faces as a white woman are harder than that of the two black women sitting in the audience. It is just appalling that this happened. And I'm glad that people have been talking about it. So I think not that long ago, a comment like this wouldn't have got the kind of backlash that we're seeing it get this week. I think that we're making some real progress on this, but we have so much more to do. And I don't doubt that she feels badly about it and genuinely is apologizing. But the reality is that was still inside her. That was still her default. And until we get to a point where that isn't the default, then we're always going to have progress to make. Because even the most well-intentioned people still have aspects of harmful language inside them because of the way that our society is and the way that our society conditions us to think. And we really have to actively work to break down those narratives that we have been conditioned into thinking. We need to be mindful in the words that we use because it is in those unintentional moments, those thoughtless moments, that real harm can be done. Because those are your most unguarded moments. They're when you're saying what is really in the back of your mind or really written on your heart. And if those things are still racist and if those things are causing harm, even if you don't mean them, even if you didn't intend to hurt people, those are still things that are ingrained in your mind somehow. And we really need to work and actively think about the way that we communicate so that we can try and reduce that harm and also make ourselves better people so that those things don't come to mind when we're being thoughtless and mindless in the way that we're speaking. We should aim to be mindful in the way that we're speaking and mindful about the way that we think about these issues so that those things become habit We don't let that racist, misogynist narrative become the habit. We need to break that down and aim for the intersectional feminist rhetoric and the intersectional feminist narrative to become the habit and become the natural, thoughtless way that we speak because it just is so ingrained in us. So that's kind of the takeaway, I guess, for me from this whole thing is that we really do need to be mindful of those thoughtless comments and make sure that we're challenging ourselves to not get complacent and not think that the words that we say when we're just speaking don't matter because words are really, really powerful. Language is so very powerful. And speaking of being mindful and the things that we say, that brings me nicely, segue completely unplanned in all honesty, but that brings me perfectly to wanting to talk about my next topic, which is people's continual fixation on discussing the weight of people in the public eye. So if you've seen some of my Instagram posts this week, you will have seen my continued annoyance about the way that Anthony Albanese's weight is being a talking point for 
any interview that he's doing. So last weekend, he did a 60 Minutes interview, which was, I guess, the follow-up balanced approach from the interview they did with Scott Morrison a few weeks back. But the entire first quarter of this interview focused on his quote-unquote makeover and massive weight loss, and it absolutely infuriated me. If you are on my subscriber-only list on Instagram, you will have seen the recap that I did for that interview, and I was so mad. (laughs) I was so very mad about the way that his weight is this constant fixation for people. The fact that he has lost weight in people's minds somehow makes him more professional, more prime ministerial, more worthy of attention, more indicative of some kind of internal moral worth or drive and I am so very sick of it. We also saw this with Rebel Wilson hosting the BAFTAs last weekend where she made a point of comparing her current body to her body from two years ago and talking about the massive transformation she's made. And I have to wonder if she did this so that she could get out in front of it and set the narrative for how it's discussed rather than it being discussed without her ability to be able to set that narrative first. But it was so completely disappointing to see the way that she did it because she is trying to separate herself so hard from that previous version of herself that now she sees as unworthy or unlovable or some other kind of other that she doesn't want to be associated with. And that is the way that she framed it. We have this real problem in society with the way that we talk about weight and particularly weight loss and fat people. We have a tendency within society to ascribe success and professionalism and beauty and worthiness as equal to thinness. And by virtue of that, we then ascribe the opposite to fatness. So unprofessional, lazy, failure, unattractive. Those things we are told by society are equated with fatness. And of course, neither of those things are true. Being thin does not mean success. Being fat does not mean failure. We've fallen into this trap in society where that racism and eugenics viewpoint has worked its way into the way that we view fatness. So there's so much anti-fat bias that is built into society and it creeps into the way that we speak. It creeps into the way that we perceive people as competent. It creeps into the way that we see people as aesthetically pleasing and it creeps into the way that we view people as healthy or not healthy. We have a real problem where we look at somebody who is thin and think they must be healthy. A lot of the discussion about Anthony Albanese's weight loss has been, well, he's getting healthy. No, he lost some weight. We actually don't know the state of his health. We don't have any insight into that. You cannot tell somebody's health by how they look. We see Anthony Albanese losing some weight. We don't see his cholesterol count. We don't see how much weight he can lift. We don't see how far he can run. We don't see that. We see weight loss. And then people ascribe a label of health and fitness to that. When I was at my absolute thinnest and people were asking me, you know, you look great. What have, what's your secret? What are you doing? My secret was crippling depression 
and not eating and getting divorced. I was in the worst physical shape of my life because I was so weak from barely eating. I was in the worst mental health of my life and I was exploring my depression and anxiety in a way that I had to, in a way that I'd never had to grapple with before. I'm sure that I've had depression and anxiety my whole life, but it was just this confluence of events that all kind of happened at the same time that just were an untenable amount of stress on my body and my mind and I just couldn't cope. But the thing is, is people saw me being thin and thought that I was healthy. I was so unhealthy mentally and physically at that point. I am so much healthier now, but people would look at me now in my size 16 body compared to me at my thinnest when I was down to like a size 8 to 10. And people would think that I was much healthier at that point when I was very skinny compared to how I am now when I am a lot fatter. We don't need to make a value judgment on health based on looks. There's actually no way to do that. What you're actually doing is making a deduction about somebody's size. That is it. You cannot determine anything else from looking at them other than their size. You cannot determine health by looking at somebody. You cannot look at somebody's weight loss and say it's for their health or they're doing it to be fit if you don't know that. We should not be commenting on people's bodies because we don't know what is going on behind the scenes. Somebody's so-called massive weight loss or incredible weight loss could be because they're having severe mental health issues, could be because they have a chronic illness, could be due to a number of things you don't know, so we shouldn't comment on it. And it's not just the people in our lives that we shouldn't comment on bodies. We shouldn't really be commenting on the bodies of people in the public eye, not because they're going to hear us. They don't care about what we think of them. But the people in your life will hear you talking about them. If you talk about how great somebody looks in the public eye after they've lost a massive amount of weight, the person in your life who looks similar to the way that that famous person did before is going to think, well, crap, what do they think of me? Is that what I need to do to gain attention and value from that person? lose weight. Or if you criticize somebody in the public eye for their weight gain or their body, the famous person won't see it, but the people in your life will, and they will know you are not a safe person to talk to about their body issues. We need to be really mindful about the way that we talk about bodies, the way we talk about weight loss, and the way that we talk about fatness in our society, because there is so much inbuilt anti-fat bias in the way that we talk about these things and the default settings of society that have been bedded down through centuries of patriarchy and white supremacy defining what is valued that we really need to take a second catch ourselves before we say something mindless or thoughtless and really think about what we're saying and who it might be harming and I think one of the ways that we can challenge ourselves and make sure that we're not trying to reinforce negative stereotypes about fat people but also not reinforcing this societal narrative that thin equals success or health is to have these discussions and point out where it's happening in the media so that we can be more mindful and look for these kind of little trigger words that are kind of sprinkled throughout reporting that are supposed to be really innocuous, but actually just reinforce that narrative in our minds. 
So I think having these conversations are really important. I also think diversifying your social media feed is incredibly important. We need to see lots of different bodies. We need to see lots of different perspectives. We need to see lots of different ways of talking about bodies. So I would really encourage you to follow the Bodzilla, aka April. She is phenomenal and just has the most joyful, but also incredibly realistic way of talking about bodies that is just so beautiful and so refreshing and I adore her. So please go follow April because I think you would really enjoy her content, but also it's a great way to be challenged about these things on a daily basis and actually start to reprogram our minds and the way that we think about this so that we are challenging our inherent biases and our kind of default way of thinking so that we can kind of reset that narrative within ourselves to make sure that the things that we're saying are actually supporting people and not accidentally harming them through our own thoughtlessness and lack of awareness in the way that our inherent biases come out in the way that we speak. And the last of my little lightning round of rants that I want to talk about is the maths quote unquote nude photo scandal. Now, I didn't see the episode because I haven't been watching maths, but I saw the promo for it and then I saw what happened on Clementine Ford's stories. If you're not on her close friends list, I absolutely recommend it. She does phenomenal content, which I'm sure I don't need to tell anybody listening. But I saw it on Clem's stories and watched it unfold via her recap. And essentially what happened is one of the women, Olivia, claimed that she had Googled one of the women that she had an issue with in the experiment, Dom, and claims that she found a nude photo of her and promptly circulated it throughout the group and they'd all kind of been discussing it together. Now, I won't go into too much of the detail because Clem's recaps do it really well and no doubt by the time you're listening to this, there has been tons of articles written about the detail and how it all went down. But what I want to talk about on this is the way that it has been framed as a quote-unquote nude photo scandal. No, no channel nine or whichever channel is responsible for this show that I clearly don't watch. (laughs) It's not a scandal. It's image based abuse. This is what we used to call revenge porn. So I saw a fantastic post by the assertive social worker, which I'll link to in the show notes, but also really recommend you follow her. She's phenomenal. And part of this post says, Not only did we see revenge porn, but we also saw significant victim blaming, which only perpetuates abusive behavior and shifts the responsibility from the abuser to the victim with statements such as, I'm sorry, but you put it out there. People are going to talk about it. And she kind of deserves it though. So I really recommend you go look at that post. This is only like a small snippet of it. It's a fantastic caption. But again, this comes down to language by choosing the language of nude photo scandal rather than image-based abuse. It creates it as something titillating, something for drama, not a crime. Image-based abuse is incredibly serious. Women are usually the victims of image-based abuse and revenge porn. And the way that it's framed is as something to shame the person in the image. So Olivia was trying to shame Dom and slut shame her and imply that somehow she is less worthy or less deserving of respect 
because of this nude photo. Now, it also happens that this photo was from Dom's OnlyFans. So not only is she targeting a woman, she's targeting somebody who's participating in sex work. Now, OnlyFans is absolutely a valid form of sex work. All sex work is work. And the way that Olivia has come at this with this puritanical approach is demonizing Dom for being comfortable in her body, demonizing Dom for sex work, demonizing Dom for using her body in a way that she sees fit. It is her body. It is her choice. And there is nothing shameful about taking naked photos of yourself. There is nothing shameful in using photos of yourself to make money. There is shame deserving when you use a photo like that to try and shame another woman. There absolutely is blame to be apportioned here and it is all with Olivia. There are serious questions that need to be asked about how she got that photo because she claims that she just Googled it. But that's not possible with OnlyFans. So either somebody has breached the privacy of Dom's OnlyFans page and has posted it somewhere else. A producer gave it to Olivia. We don't know how she got that. But there is a lot of questions that need to be asked about that because it really appears that she went and sought that out. She was so overcome by internalized misogyny and wanting to take another woman down that she was wanting to shame her for a photo that was taken of her and spread it non-consensually throughout this group where she knew that this conversation was going to be publicized on national television in a primetime slot with no support, no understanding, and no context. The way that this conversation happened and that there was no intervention, that there was no language over the top of that from the so-called experts on this show means that this kind of behavior goes unchecked and it also becomes normalized. The amount of young people that are potentially seeing this are either going to be so worried that their own photos are going to be used for this or are going to take on that narrative of slut shaming and apply that to the women in their lives who have taken naked photos. There are so many of us who have taken naked photos. We really, as a society, need to grapple with the fact that there are nude photos of so many people out there, but when you spread them around, that makes you the asshole. That makes you the bad person. Taking a naked photo of yourself in a consensual way does not make you a bad person. It is not even that uncommon. But the way that these people have responded is absolutely a massive problem. And the fact that that attitude and that reaction is still so normalized in 2022 and is still the default way that people talk about naked photos and about sex work and about slut shaming and about a woman being confident in her body is really, really troubling to me. So that's kind of it for my little lightning round of rants. Uh, Even though I kind of went into this thinking that these were completely disparate topics. As I was talking, I kind of realized that they all seem to have this common thread of language and the way that we use it and the way that we have internalized these societal narratives that are actually really problematic. And they come out when we're not mindful and when we're not active about breaking down our internal biases and about challenging that societal narrative and making sure we're continually working on ourselves to be able to overcome that internal patriarchal white supremacist narrative that has been built into us and conditioned into us. Uh, Somehow I've managed to find uh, a common thread to pull all of those seemingly random and disparate stories together. So hopefully you enjoyed that. 
because I've done three mini rants, I'm going to go straight into my recommendation. And my recommendation this week is a podcast called The Trojan Horse Affair. So it's by Serial and the New York Times. And it follows the Trojan Horse Affair story, which it seems was very well known in Britain, but I have never heard about it here. So the description of the podcast says, A strange letter appears on a city councillor's desk in Birmingham, England, laying out an elaborate plot by Islamic extremists to infiltrate the city's schools. The plot has a code name, Operation Trojan Horse. The story soon explodes in the news and kicks off a national panic. By the time it all dies down, the government had launched multiple investigations, beefed up the country's counter-terrorism policy, revamped schools, and banned people from education for the rest of their lives. So the investigative journalism aspect of it is run by two journalists, Hamza Syed, who is a Muslim man from Birmingham, England, and the other person involved is Brian Reed, who hosted Serial's podcast, S-Town. The things that I really enjoyed about this podcast is the way that it looks at Islamophobia and the implications of latent Islamophobia and how even a hoax letter can create a bit of a moral panic and be used as a justification for implementing stricter counterterrorism laws and a closer look at the way that religion specifically is involved in schools. The other aspect of it that I found really interesting is that it's almost a comment on investigative journalism itself. It's very introspective in a way about the process and about what it is supposed to achieve. So I binge listened to it uh, on a drive to and from Sydney. I really enjoyed it, but I will give a small disclaimer. I do think that for its focus on Islamophobia, the podcast misses quite a lot about this story. I think the podcast missed the misogyny, the problems with what the kids in public school were told about sex the child sexual endangerment aspect. And these aspects were kind of cast aside as they didn't match with the direction they wanted to take the story in, which I think all journalism stories do in a way. You kind of narrow down your scope and you have a very specific story you want to tell. But I don't think it's okay that those serious issues were seen as a minor blip rather than massive issues with people at the centre of this story. They interview a man, for instance, who made incredibly misogynistic and homophobic comments in the past, but then they kind of give him a pass by saying, well, he's changed his view now, with no reflection on the damage that his comments in the moment caused, regardless of his seeming 180 turn later down the track. There was an interesting article by Sonia Soda for The Guardian, which I'll link in the show notes, and it says, The Trojan Horse Affair presents a one-sided account that minimises child protection concerns, misogyny and homophobia, in order to exonerate the podcast hero, a man named Tahir Alam. In doing so, it breaches the standards the public have the right to expect of journalists with cruel consequences for those it uses and abuses along the way. Later in the piece, it says that the podcast, quote, grossly understates the risks children were exposed to with real consequences. One teacher implicated in the sex education lesson was later convicted for sexually abusing a 14-year-old girl he referred to as his wife, end quote. Now, I would know that part of the driving force between Hamza Syed's desire to look into the story is that he is Muslim and he has directly been the target of Islamophobia. Birmingham is also his hometown and is the center of this scandal. So he has been directly impacted by it, but he can also see the impact of the community that he lives in when it was happening. And while Sonia is a woman of color, she is not Muslim. So I just want to make that clear that there is a personal element here for Hamza Syed that we 
do need to be cautious not to discount his experiences of being a Muslim in Britain and being in the community where this all happened. But there are missed opportunities with this podcast and the way that it was handled, and it's very telling that it's primarily male in its reporting and its approach, and in a way it replicates some of the issues of the people that they are investigating. I really think that when it comes to these long-form journalist blockbuster podcast series, we do really need to be mindful to apply critical thinking to it and don't just be passive consumers of the story, but to think about it critically and see how it challenges our thoughts on various things. Like, for instance, one of the aspects that I found quite interesting was one of the key whistleblowers was a white woman working in one of the schools and she spoke in a way that came across as very much that she was talking over and talking for the Muslim women that she was referring to. So I think that there is like a slightly you know, paternalistic look at the way that people have assumptions about Islam. But then on the other hand, we have the Muslim Women's Network in the UK who sent an email to Sarah Koenig, who's in charge of the serial podcast and is credited as the editor of this series. So Shaista Gohia, the co-chair of the Muslim Women's Network UK, sent an email to Sarah Koenig, which says, There is genuine anti-Muslim hostility, but these men have used it to their advantage to portray themselves as victims by getting everyone else to focus on the extremism allegations. So people became completely blind to their attitudes towards women and girls that were heavily influenced by patriarchal interpretations of Islam and their culture. And later in the email, it says, I just feel the men are trying to use mainstream media to try and ensure their misogyny remains covered up and to clean up their images. So we do need to apply some critical thinking to it. And it's a fantastic story and it's a fantastic podcast. And I think it's really well done. But I would encourage you to go into it with somewhat of a critical mind and think about the issues that it's raising and what the other side might be that isn't being told and isn't being shown here. But all that said, I really did enjoy it and I do think that it is one of the more kind of bingeable podcasts. I was a little bit troubled in some aspects of it in the way that certain issues were handled or alternatively not handled. All in all, I think it's a really good podcast, but it's always good to be mindful of the parts that it isn't telling us and what it isn't showing us. And I think that we should have that kind of perception of all media and all journalism Say, what are they showing me? What do they want me to take away from this? But alternatively, what are they not showing me? What are they not telling me about this? And where are the gaps in their story? So that is it for this episode of Lauren Lately, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it's a little bit of a different format to usual, but I really liked being able to cover a couple of different issues today. You can find me on Instagram at lauren.lately. You can sign up to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Lauren Lately and join the VIP access level for access to my close friends list on Instagram, where I share a little bit more behind the scenes and a little bit more in-depth analysis on issues that are catching my attention lately. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you all soon. Thank <laughs> you.